Welcome back to another episode of Recap, the podcast where we talk about the latest news. What, are you laughing at me? <laughs> the podcast where we talk about the latest news featured on our social media pages. Thank you. This is the news that we find matters most to our voters, and we encourage legislators to not only listen, but to also act on what they hear. It'd be nice to have one of them on one of these shows at one point in time. I am your host, as always, Joshua Hyde, and with me today is our analyst, Alex Crohannon, and one of our writers, you can't seem to stop laughing today, Anthony Arnold. How are you guys doing today? Struggling. <laughs> we know, we, we we heard the pre-pod rant about daylight savings times. I'm doing great, as evidenced by my constant laughing. I'm a morning dude, and so I'm good, man. <laughs> do, do we need to have a, a mini rant about daylight savings yeah, time now? Yeah, at two in the afternoon, <sighs> yeah, morning people would be doing fine. <laughs> I was fine this morning. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I, I feel kind of indifferent about daylight savings time. It's just kind of like a thing that just happens. And I'm like, okay, I guess we're doing that now. I, I say, I want to get your wife in on here and then like, how was Anthony this morning? Like, you're like, great. <laughs> he wakes up. He's like, boom, you want some coffee and some eggs? He's like, uh, okay. Sure. She's like, I mean, the same. She's too much. She's always too much in the morning. I'm like, all right. Yeah, okay. fair. <laughs> Dude, speaking of coffee and eggs, I know this is a 100% a tangent. So uh, I decided to make breakfast this morning and we were at Costco the other day and we found this like real thick sliced bacon and it was the best thing I've ever had. Let me tell you something. Oh. Hers, <laughs> thick sliced bacon is the jam. Now, Anthony, let's let's go ahead and get back on topic before that goes yeah. too far. <laughs> Anthony, talk to me about our polls. All right. So our polls come out every Friday on our social media pages. So you can find them there. Feel free to uh, respond and share. The poll I'm covering is our most recent one. And I'm just, I'm going to kind of read the whole question here. So over the last year, we've seen a growth in anti-racism. One of the core tenets of anti-racism is that combating racism cannot merely be passive, but that it requires active resistance, sometimes in the form of programs that target harmful ideologies. In order to accomplish that goal, some companies, organizations, and universities have instituted training that they believe will reduce the impact of white supremacy. Reportedly, however, such training may make white employees feel as if they are being singled out. Further, under current law, such training, particularly if it is mandated, may be a civil rights violation if it creates a hostile work environment. So the question was, do you personally believe such training violates the right of white employees and or causes tension in the workplace? If so, what should be done? So this uh, this is a, a complicated question. I know we're going to come back to it later, sort of follow up on what we're going to talk about. Uh, my quick take is that when something is mandated and it's made a condition of employment, um, it has to be very careful not to cross certain lines, right? There's a reason HR training is, is boring and bland. It is meant to shield the company from lawsuits, and that is it. it, is, it that, that is really all it is allowed to legally do. You know, uh, There's probably some wiggle room, but it's, it has to be fairly narrow. So if your training uh, is simply going to try to condition people to think about their, uh, their, their biases, that's probably fair if everybody is participating in it. But if your training is going to, you know, say things like uh, this element of white culture is bad, uh, you're probably into some dicier territory. Um, and it's like I said, I know we're going to come back to this later, so I'm not going to 
I'm not going to you know, take up too much time here, but obviously I want to hear what you guys think. So, Josh, tell me what you think, man. So my my thoughts on this are kind of complex. I have like two major thoughts that come in the like 100% separate camps. So my first thought is like, of course we're doing that. Like, why wouldn't we do that? We need people to understand like what they're doing and why they're doing it poorly and, and all the ways that it affects people, even if they don't see it. Um, and like, that's a no brainer. And like, of course it needs to be mandated. And on the other hand, my brain's like, well, I'm not necessarily trying to like protect white people when I say this, but I know that in some cases, like the workplace isn't necessarily the best place to have these kinds of conversations, um, especially depending on like what you actually do. So while it is important to like, you know, prevent harassment and other things that people may not understand is happening around them, I I understand why some people are are bothered by it possibly becoming mandated, although I don't know many people that are against it entirely. Yep. I think that is uh, that's a good take. And I, I, I look I look forward to exploring some more of these thoughts later. Alex, I know you and I discussed this one on our own, but we don't have two, three hours. So give me the TLDR version, man. Uh, the TLDR is that uh, things like this always come down to execution. And yeah, it, you, you have um, like everyone should be comfortable in their workplace. Like it should, it should never be hostile for anybody. Um, and so you need to go about these things in a, we're going to uh, call out problematic behavior in a general sense and not, and, it's a, and if you feel personally called out by that, well, if the shoe fits, that's, that's, a, that's a you problem. All right. So there you go. Like I said, I know we're going to be following up on some some anti-racism talk later. So like I said, our polls come out every Friday. You can find them across our social media pages. If you comment, there's a chance we will read your comment on our podcast and uh, we may respond to your comment as well. We love to interact with you guys. So that's all I got, man. I got to say, Anthony especially is really good about responding to people on Facebook, whether it's an article or the uh the poll itself and i know that some of the polls we we kind of dive into some crazy territory sometimes with the polls themselves and so i don't necessarily feel like you need to comment although we definitely enjoy hearing your opinions on the questions that we ask but at the very least you know even if you just share it amongst your friends and like have a conversation amongst yourselves that's also great really it's it's about fostering a discussion obviously we want to discuss it with you but even if you just discuss it among yourselves that's also great so do whatever you want to but please add a comment if you want and again we will usually (laughs) interact with that comment in some way so alex let's talk numbers all right unfortunately um, our steady decline has tail off steady. and we are, we are, we are now like, we are just holding steady. Uh, we're adding about, we are back down. We are back down to, uh, only adding about 52,000, uh, cases a week. I'm oh, sorry. A di- sorry. A day. Oh, sorry. 50, 50 new, th- 50,000 new cases a day. Uh, we're averaging only about a thousand new deaths a day. Um, current hotspots include Rhode Island. New Jersey and Missouri. That's weird. Uh, yes. I, I, hmm. Yep. 
That's not where I thought that would be. No, not, not at all. Um, and I, and I don't have great explanations to why those three places in particular, but uh, like, so that's the, so the bad news, right? So we're at um, total number of cases. We're at 29,229,162 total deaths. Uh, we're at 531,766. Yeah. We finally passed half a mil. Oh, we did. We did that like two weeks ago. Um, and our, yep. like, our our president did like a uh, whole. Um, it was like right after Rush Limbaugh died. It was like literally like twenty four hours after Rush Limbaugh died, and then Biden was like, "Yeah, we're gonna fly our staffs at half mast because we we have five hundred thousand people Americans just dead in a year, and that's probably bad. Probably, yeah. All right, so those, like that's the bad. So I want to get the bad news out of the way. And now I want to talk, and hopefully I want to talk about like the new numbers that we're going to be excited about. And that is like the rate of vaccination. Yes, those are numbers yeah. that I can be excited about. Yes, please. Share right. those, sir. So um, from a federal level, um, we're at about 19.9% uh, of the total population um, with at least one dose and 10.3% fully vaccinated. Okay. Uh, we've we've admitted uh, the federal government has administrated one hundred one thousand. Sorry, sorry, not the federal government. The the total at the federal level, right? Um, we've administered one hundred and one million doses, um, and one hundred and thirty three million have been distributed. Um, states that are best performing: um, New Mexico, Connecticut, Alaska, South Dakota, Rhode Island, North Dakota, Massachusetts, Maine, and New Hampshire, are all between 23 and 27 percent um with at least one dose and uh between nine and a half and fifteen and a half percent of their populations fully vaccinated nice that is wonderful yeah that is progress is what that yeah. is yeah um and then uh, on the other hand on the other end um georgia alabama tennessee utah texas arkansas missouri and mississippi all, uh, all need, you all need up your game. You're, uh, you're on the, you're on the bottom, eight. Yeah. And you're between uh, fourteen and eighteen percent of of people who have received at least one dose, and you are below ten percent for total vac- uh, population vaccinated. Hmm. Not, not a great look, guys. No. Step it up. It's a rookie numbers. We need to get them up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well. At least something is looking up. It's it's crazy that we can be excited about death numbers not being greater than a thousand. I just, I mean, we do this every time, right? Like I I I get like a little sad every single time I hear just how many people actually have died from this. And then we got people. I was just at the store the other day, and we got people walking into the store, not given, pardon my French, a single fuck. Like, just that's the thing. And then, especially, thank you for that. We got spring break coming. We saw what happened with Labor Day last year. <laughs> like, oh my god, I I can only imagine things are about to get worse. I mean, but things always get worse before they get better, right? I guess maybe I don't know. So, so. Uh, those are the numbers. And you know what, Alex? Thank you for sharing those numbers with us. I'll try 
to feel better about those later. So um, let's go ahead and talk about a few of the things that were recently posted that I think are really worth talking about. Um, and this is, I believe this is the most recent article, if you look. Uh, Minneapolis, Minneapolis, I can use words, uh, has agreed to a $2.7 million settlement on the, uh, the lawsuit regarding George Floyd's death. Uh, for those of you who weren't aware, his family had filed, had filed a suit against the state and obviously the uh, four officers responsible for George Floyd's death shortly after um, he did, in fact, die. And this comes, the, the settlement comes just weeks before the actual trial of Derek Chauvin, who is the um, officer who we saw in the video kneeling on George's neck. Um, Benjamin Crump who is one of the attorneys representing the Floyd family uh, stated that that settlement, the uh, 200 or sorry, the $27 million one uh, was the largest pre-trial settlement in a civil rights wrongful death lawsuit that he'd seen so far. Um, he also apparently represented Breonna Taylor's family who in a bit of related news uh, had reached a settlement of $12 million uh, with the city of Louisville, they also filed suit after Breonna Taylor died, but that happened about six months after she was killed, whereas this is happening effectively just now, or very recently, I should say. So that's a thing. Um, we'll see what happens with the actual trial itself, but yeah, the the city um, has reached a settlement on, on Floyd's death. I think that's at least somewhat progress, because in the past, I don't think we would have seen a settlement at all. What do you guys think about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's good. You know, you you want to see people go to jail when they do these things, and that's that's always the tougher hurdle to clear. So, as you noted, we will see if that one is if that one actually happens this time. That would be a a really important step. It would be changing some of these behaviors, but um, cities don't like paying big lawsuits either. So, <laughs> no, <they you> know, don't. <laughs> for their own selfish reasons, we we can hope that Minneapolis says uh, we would like to avoid future $27 million lawsuit. So we need you guys to shape up or ship out. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> ship up or ship out, my friend. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, the other thing that I wanted to go ahead and talk about real quick is uh, not that long ago, Biden came to address the nation. And this was actually shortly after he signed, which some people have already received, uh, the $1.9 trillion relief package. I don't know how all that was broken down, but I know for at least the most people uh, that that ends up coming out to the 1400 or the 14 yet yeah, 1400 uh that some people are seeing or some people have already seen i know myself had i haven't received it yet but a couple other members of my family have and that what i want to really talk about is specifically some of the things that biden said uh in his address which is uh i i noted basically how differently uh he had his address in comparison to you know, Trump, when he had his first address and all the ways that he was kind of like downplaying it. And we know this, we, he admitted to it himself uh, that he was intentionally kind of downplaying the effects of the virus. Whereas Biden, when he's there is really very much wanting people to take it seriously, to get vaccinated, to keep wearing masks and everything else. And I just think that it's great that we have a president that is at least on paper looking out for people's interests. Our very normal president doing very normal presidential things. Yes. That's all yeah. that I ask. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. No, that's absolutely it. And Biden is well suited for the Biden is well suited for the moment because of his personal history. He tends to relate very closely to people's pain. 
because of the pain he has endured in his life, losing his own family members uh, and kids. So uh, he is he is well suited for a moment in which there's been a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, and uh, he realizes that. And so while it made his speech a little low, lower key than I think people thought it would be, um, it was a good touch to, to have a president kind of empathize with us. For sure. Especially since we haven't really had that. Well, I mean, we, we, we had it in Obama. Obama did that a lot too, but uh, obviously we were coming right out of Trump and we don't need to talk about him anymore. He's no longer president. But um, one other thing I want to specifically touch on in his speech was how he believes as long as we can get our vaccination numbers up, that we might be able to have small gatherings on this year's July 4th, which I do believe is possible. I know that some uh, areas of the U.S., along with other people or other you know places around the world, have been letting people who've been vaccinated uh, kind of get back to some aspects of their social lives. I know we've already talked about that uh, in one of our other podcasts. So, I mean, that that very much feels like something that's possible as long as we can get more people on board with the vaccine. So we'll see what that ends up looking like. But one of the things I specifically wanted to touch on was the fact that like this gathering thing should only matter if we get vaccination numbers up. He wasn't just saying that like, oh, we should get together on the fourth anyway. No, it's, it's about having small gatherings on the fourth if we have enough people who can make that safe. That's the only other thing I really wanted to say on that. So with that, we'll go ahead and uh, cap it here, and we'll be right back for the discussion part of this show. Be right back. Welcome to the discussion portion of our recap episode, where we take a topic and we kind of run it amongst the group. Uh, today, we're going to be going over a bit more of what we talked about earlier in the poll about the rise of anti-racism and how people are dealing with it and some of the ways around that. So uh, I've, I've still got the boys with me, uh, Anthony and, and Alex. Uh, no one seems to have joined me yet. But uh, what I want to go ahead and do this time, like I kind of do most times, but I, I have a few uh, very pointed questions about the nature of this anti or this rise in anti-racism. And I just kind of want you guys' opinion on it. Cool? Yeah. So obviously with just about everything involving anti-racism, there's going to be pushback. We know that this is going to be a thing. There was pushback when Kaepernick kneeled. There was pushback, and, I mean, going all the way back to any real event in civil rights or anything else. There's, there's There have been legions of people who have been against the change. My question, and the, kind of my first big question here, because I know this is kind of like the point of the the article and also kind of in my mind the biggest question in the room is should anti-racism training be mandatory i'm gonna say no alex where do you fall <laughs> um i require uh additional information <laughs> well uh, as you mentioned before, Alex, it really it really depends on execution. So I I can't say exactly how it should be implemented anywhere. But let's say as an example, you as you're doing your HR trainings, right? You're watching the videos. There's just a video on anti-racism. 
and that's mandatory just like compliance in hr or you know digital security is mandatory would that be problematic who are you asking both of you anyone anthony i want your name <laughs> uh i'm still gonna say yes yeah i mean of course i mean it, it I know I'm going to ask for context because it depends on what the contents are of the video. But if we're just sort of, you know, if we're doing a yes or no thing right now, then I'm going to say um, I still think that that shouldn't be mandatory. I, I think the people have a right to earn a living without having uh, uh, people have a right to earn a living in a way that does not make them inherently uncomfortable i think that is a right people have i don't think they have to be exposed to uh society's broader views while they're working so I, I think that's i'm not okay so i don't disagree with your position i disagree with your i'm gonna i am gonna vehemently disagree with your argument <laughs> okay <laughs> your society doesn't work um your exist like your existence imposes um yeah. discomfort on other people and that's like and th that's that's just fact. That's just the way yeah. that like humans work. So like, no, you don't have a right to work or like, cause you can't exist without making other people uncomfortable. Yeah. So get out, get out of here with this. You have a right to work without without feeling uncomfortable. I think so I, more of what he was going for was that you you don't you don't need to have like a toxic work environment. Like, yeah. Oh, but that's not okay. Yeah. So I but cannot imagine a situation, for instance, where I would go to work and my employer would mandate me watching a video about the dangers of black culture. I would like. Well, I, I don't. Would I recoil. Don't, I don't yeah, know. I agree. <laughs> yeah, but okay. So that that goes into a bit more detail. Yeah, we're yeah. Not, we weren't going to do. But to so, get context for where I'm sort of coming from, that's sort of the place I'm coming from. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Because I can imagine a lot of people would think that video would be like, white people are awful, stop being awful. And I don't think that's how that should operate, but we'll get more into that later. Yeah. So if it's not, here's my second question. If it's not mandatory, would it make a difference in both implementation and success if there were, if people were incentivized to go through it? Hmm. Incentivized how? I don't know. Maybe. Does it matter? <laughs> maybe maybe uh, they get some some kind of work related benefit. Maybe there is. I don't know. It really depends on your company. Maybe there's a difference in pay. Whatever makes sense to them. Um, I I, I asked, but I am struggle. I am struggling to think of an of an incentive that would not. That would probably not run afoul of the law. I, I, so I say this because I got to, Alex, when you and I talked about this, right? Civil rights legislation, when it, it, it is not, is like almost never applied to thinking about how to protect white people because that's just not how it's ever been applied. But um, if you have something where you are conditioning promotions upon this and and that is going to uh, in any way or form shape form be categorized as some form of harassment and you're like conditioning again promotions on it uh you are going to run afoul of the law and i don't 
I just, I just don't know how you could have a situation where people can make more money or be given promotions at their job uh, based upon attendance at like a seminar for like, let's say you had a seminar, like let's say you had a speaker come in and you would go, this is not mandatory, but attendance is tracked. I mean, we've all been in that position as employees, right? Like we're not telling you, you have to, but we'll be noting who came. Uh, this is not, I say, this is strictly speaking, non-mandatory overtime. Yes. This is completely volunteer. We see this in the game industry, right? You don't have to do this crunch on Saturday, but we'll be tracking who is. You know what? I kind of feel like I have to then. <laughs> no one's asking. No one's demanding that you do 70 hours yeah. of, of, of yeah. work a week. We're simply noting we'll be tracking it and we'll be remembering it when your annual review comes. But you're it's not, not mandatory. Team, Anthony, you're just not a team player. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can we hear? I mean, we can hear that conversation in our heads, right? You didn't attend the anti-racism seminar, and so we don't think you fully support the company's values. Mm. Makes it feel kind of mandatory, then. That's that's fair. That's uh, I will fair. observe that probably doesn't run afoul of the law. Just as a just as a note, it depend. It will depend heavily upon uh, upon state. Yes, and it would depend upon the contents of the training. Which is my which is my position, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> also fair. So I mean, we we we've already kind of hit on one of the biggest things about this, but I'll I'll go into my major thoughts later when, as we kind of recap everything we've discussed so far. But the next section I kind of wanted to discuss was uh, basically how to avoid what I'm going to call the easiest pitfall when you deal with this. And we can draw, in my opinion, direct parallels between both the popularity and the problems of the book White Fragility when we start to apply these things. So effectively, what I wanna know is, do you guys feel like there's a good way to stop this anti-racism training from becoming white people talk to other white people about a not white problem? No. I don't feel like you can stop it from becoming that. I actually think that's one of the one of the biggest problems it has. Uh, Robin D'Angelo is by far the most prominent uh, the most prominent figure in the anti-racism movement, uh, and she, as you noted, is a a white woman who makes money who makes money doing these programs for largely white-owned companies in which they do programs targeted at white employees uh, done so that the company can avoid potential lawsuits if they think that's something or more likely so that they can curry favor with a largely white audience. There, there've been some stuff that has showed that like white progressives and liberals tend to be to the left of like black and brown people when it comes to racial issues actually. <laughs> um, it's, it's just a bizarre sort of positioning and a whole different discussion but it, it sort of gets into what you're talking about which is it's, it's, it's white people talking to other white people about uh, about black people <laughs> so here's okay to which I will respond but that's what but that's what you've wanted that's what the movement has wanted for 80 years my dude uh no. Yeah. I I I I want, I want I want black people leading the discussions. 
Let's see. Okay, so if we if we if we go back to the to the BLM uh to like the BLM movements not too you know not so long yeah. ago, um we were talking about we were just talking about like nah like you, white people need to talk to their white friends about this. You need to call your like you need to call your friends out for like no that's that's not a funny joke guys. Um so you can't have it both ways, man. That that is, I I will side with Alex on that one. That is absolutely correct. People have been calling for white people to talk with other white people about this issue for a while. Except, I think the only problem has become white people don't always talk well about this (laughs) Uh, to other white people. (laughs) This is super fair, but okay. So this is largely my position. You can tell me what to do, or you can tell me how to do it. That's I, I mean, I can't, I can't argue with that. Um, I, I want to go ahead and lead into my next question because Anthony, you've technically already answered it. Um, so my, my question is in, in the nature of, you know, having things run or, you know, the, the, the programs being run or what have you, is it a problem that most of them happen to be white led? And according to you, Anthony, <laughs> you want black people leading the discussion. Um, what What do you think, Alex? Do, do you think it's problematic that white people are leading these discussions? No, um, I don't. So I'm of the opinion that um, your your race does not disqualify you from you know from holding a position like from holding any position in the same way that you, like your gender doesn't disqualify you from holding any position. Um, what matters is now is it what matters is who is it like who's now of like for forming the program like diversity matters and um like for forming positions diversity matters but so 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 if this white i mean so the problem with white fragility isn't that it's white people talking to white people um the problem with white fragility is that it's um a philosophy largely made by white people about black people that is being that is being distributed to white people about black people <laughs> um this is like the same like this is the same problem okay this is the same problem with like um so the further you are away from an indian reservation the more people say native american the closer you are to an indian reservation the more likely people are to say indian and it's not because they're racist, um, because like you, 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 the distribution just kind of gets the like it does like regardless of distance, um, like the the amount of racism is about the same. What what it is is that the Indians call like refer to themselves as Indians. It is their identity. It is the name that they. Yes, it was the name that was given to them. Them, but at some point they're like, no, we're keeping this. But that's kind of why I have the position I do, though. I, I so this hints at what I got, what I said earlier, which is that the the sort of white liberals leading the discussions are actually to the left of the people who they are talking about trying to benefit, and I don't think they realize the positions you're taking may be ones that like black and brown people don't actually hold, and that they are just positionally wrong. And and that is something that could be addressed by simply 
like you, you should actually talk to and ask black people. And when I say this, like not your, your college educated black people friends, because um, this is a whole different part of this, but as people get more educated, their positions tend to actually move no matter where they are, because as people get more educated, they don't actually get more reasonable. They get better at justifying their positioning. They get better at finding evidence that justifies wherever they currently are. It actually doesn't make them more likely to moderate. It actually makes them more likely to move to the extremes. But most people aren't college educated. <laughs> so you have this group who, who really is not actually representative, right? So if you're Amazon, the person leading the white fragility discussion on Amazon is likely talking to a workforce that they are not actually very close to at all. They're just not close to them. So like I am encouraged, and whether it's a black person or a white person, what I'm actually in favor of is this topic being led by people who are closer to the people. <laughs> like Robin D'Angelo has virtually no ties to the people who she's actually claiming to want to help. She's, she's just, whether it's education or race or income, she is simply not, she is simply not tied to them in, in very significant ways. Um, and I think you need to rectify that, whether it's by changing the race of the leaders or the people who are giving the speeches or at the, at the different income levels or whatever it may be. So my, my only, I don't have an issue. So go, going back to the initial question, yeah, yeah, is it a problem if white people are leading these discussions? I don't actually believe that white people having the conversation with other white people is problematic. I, I think that there are many white people who don't quite understand that they're not listening to the black and brown people around them as they're having these discussions. We've seen lots of situations where like, white leaders will actively silence members of like other races as they try to like make something better. Like there'll be like a, a statement that they make in like a thing and someone who's multicultural will like make a comment on that. And they're like, why are you being a problem, Janet? Instead of actually hearing what they're saying. And so my only real issue with white people leading the discussion is that I need those white people to be open to like criticism if as you mentioned anthony they are not actually in line with the people that they're talking to and someone is trying to help them rectify that yeah so francine just dropped a question in the chat which is are you am i saying white people can't help and that is not what i'm saying but i think a, a helpful illustration of my position is i think about the the democrat primary last time around so there was sort of a a competition among uh, whether it was Kamala or Buttigieg or Elizabeth Warren, there's like a real competition to see who can get furthest to the left because we think that's where everything is going. We're listening, we're watching Twitter, we're seeing the hashtags, we're listening to this most engaged class. And meanwhile, Joe Biden was out here like, I'm just going to park myself right here in the middle and not move. And people said, that's not going to work. That's not where the party is. And he said, ah, that is where a crucial segment of the party is. And we talked about this on this podcast. Where I was like, he's going to go to these states and he's going to kick their teeth in. And this thing is a wrap. And then he kicked their teeth in. And they said, what happened? He was more in touch with a crucial block of the party who was not nearly 
as far to the left on issues of race as people like Kamala or Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg thought. This was the same thing, for instance, that uh, I thought that this was one area where I think uh, Bernie Sanders got like kind of tripped up in his positioning because he has a really active part of his base that's also way further to the left on these issues than I think he actually wanted to be. But he needed to appeal to them, and so he kind of got caught in this weird position of trying to appeal, with, but it wasn't really natural for him. So in case of Joe Biden, I, I'm saying like, yeah, like Joe Biden gets it. He gets the people you're trying to help are not where you think they are. And I get that. And so he's an example of someone who could help because he's like, he really understands they're not where you want them to be. And we keep, we keep seeing this. Um, we saw when people have gone through this last election and they've gone, what happened with Latino voters? Well, some of the feedback is, is that they were, they were turned off by the party's move to the, by, by some of the rhetoric they were hearing about things like the police and anti-racism. They were actually turned off by that because they're not, they're not where, where certain activist classes think they are. So you're talking about them without realizing where they are. You're not meeting them where they are. Um, so no, I'm not saying they can't help. But I'm saying there's a current activist class that I actually don't think is helping. And it's not just Robin DiAngelo. She's not the only person guilty of this. Um, there are some black activists who are guilty of this as well. Oh yeah. <laughs> Happens on both sides for sure. Yep. Alex, I saw you shaking your head a lot on the chat. <laughs> Come on, man! Don't we'll 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 talk about it later. He's trying to do respectful. I don't want to sidetrack you. Uh, you. You brought us. We have very different takes on what happened in the uh, twenty, in the twenty twenty primary. Um, and we'll 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 have it out later. It's okay. Okay. I'll let you guys. I'll let you guys deal with that. So I have a few more questions. Um, the next one here is uh, I I kind of liked how I worded this, so I'm gonna I'm gonna read it how I worded it, and if I need to explain it, I will. Um, how to reckon with the reckoning, and by that I mean how to deal with people, uh, specifically white people, who are taking these programs and are feeling called out or targeted based on their actions and words. So I have I have two kind yeah. of thoughts about this, which is similar to kind of how I responded to the poll. Like on one hand, I'm like, that's 100% their problem. If they're if they're feeling like they're getting called out because they do some of these things, then they just need to not be doing those things, and they shouldn't feel called out. But at the same time, as I mentioned before, I don't know if work is the best place for them to have that realization. I don't know if work is the best place for them to have that reckoning but like i think it's important that they have it so if it happens at work i mean i guess but okay so there are only so many public spaces um so you have say so you like you have church which is like a let's say which is a relatively public space and um you could have this conversation there you won't because that's just not the way like this is not the way that like demographics work out you know, um, I, I, and I think you and I have talked about this before, uh, that um, where you sit on Sunday is the most segregated um, yep. uh, place in America. Yep. Yep. For um, sure. So, all right. So we, like, we, let's, so we take church out of there. Okay. Well, so then there's school 
And uh, you could do it in schools. And we've seen um, some places have done that. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I, we had a pretty, basically every novel that we read in high school with a couple, like with a couple of notable exceptions, 1984 and uh, Frankenstein, were all racism's bad. So and I say, and we've seen a lot, and I say, and we've seen a lot of um, pushback against that. So um, when you eliminate all the other public, I say, when you eliminate all the other public spaces, work is the place that you have to have, like, you have to have these conversations. This is the same problem with like the the millennial problem. Um, that like that that was floating around all throughout like the early two thousands, of like, well, millennials just like don't know, they just don't know how the world works, and they like they they're impossible to work with. Like they say that they want like, like you ask them what they want, and they're like a coffee machine and beanbag. But like, so we do that and then they end up leaving anyway. And it's like, well, yeah, because you like, they don't know what they want. Like what they want is like fulfillment in their job. And it's like, what, but nobody wants that. And it's like, but they do. Yeah. I, I mean, so to, 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 to go to the question you just asked, right. Um, if people are feeling uncomfortable, if people are feeling challenged at work, uh, I mean, if we're if this stuff is going to happen at work, I mean, let's say we just live in a world where this sort of training is happening, it's being handled in a way that it's legal, it's going on. Um, you're not. They, they could just be confused, and and it could be us who's mistaking their confusion for hostility. Like, you sometimes you have to actually talk to to people, and and while they're expressing their confusion or hostility you you have to listen to them and then try to actually work with them through that like you're not what you catch more flies with honey right you're not going to change people's minds by having them do training then when they get uncomfortable you mock them or like clown them like that's you're not going to change their mind doing that you're not you're not actually going to shame them I mean, you may shame some of them, but you're not actually going to shame your way into a better society. That's not actually going to work. <laughs> you're you're going to have to embrace people, even when they are expressing opinions that are like maybe hostile or that you you are confused by. Um, I, I don't know if there's another way to to do it, especially in the workforce, where even if we disagree socially at the workforce. We all need this company to function as a unit in order for any of us to actually thrive. Uh, as in, we are able to keep our jobs. <laughs> like, we kind of all need to be pulling the same direction on some level at our workplace. And yeah, you're not going to be able to do that by by making fun of people or sort of laughing at them. They uh, go, oh my God, this person is a monster. And they go, well, my first time hearing this and hearing these things makes me really uncomfortable and yeah that's a normal reaction to being challenged it's normal to be uncomfortable when you're challenged it's not a reflection of a person's individual failure and we shouldn't treat it as such either i hate being challenged like i hate it you guys know me i've been called a lot of things and a know-it-all <laughs> is frequently one of them <laughs> Shocking, I know. No, I, I would I wouldn't say that that's shocking. I know you I know you well enough to know that that's probably accurate. Yeah. <laughs> so I hate it. 
I recoil when I'm challenged. My first reaction is to recoil. And then if and then I can get back into it sometimes. My first reaction is always to go like, how dare this person suspect I'm wrong? <laughs> well, I think another another aspect of this is how I know a lot of people that I've talked to that happen to be white, and we've had several conversations about this kind of thing. They will take being wrong as meaning that they're awful people because it, what we're really talking about here is like racism, right? And so like if they have like racial biases and tendencies that they weren't aware of, or at least weren't cognizantly aware of, they'll start thinking that someone's calling them like an awful person for thinking that way. And like, in my mind, that's where a lot of the, as you mentioned, hostility and like, incredibly negative reactions are coming from because no one wants to be an awful person right like in a lot of these scenarios these people are as you mentioned just now usually for the first time grappling with these things or even if it's not for the first time this is the first time they've really been thinking about it to the at the extent that we kind of need them to be it's like something that may have come up in the past, but like it usually would have been shrugged off for like a feminist would have been like, don't worry about it. It's not your problem or like what have you. So I guess my, my only, I, I had a couple other questions, but they all boil down to this. Is it a company's job to change the societal thinking of their workers? Hmm. Yeah, so I think the length of the pause indicates that uh... <laughs> um, in a capitalist system, yes, actually, that is that is what you that is what being in a capitalist system means. Whereas I would say the opposite. I would say in a capitalist system, the primary function of an employer is to make money. I, and it is the job of the society. We did not, we did not win. And Alex, you and I have talked about this, Alex. You and I have talked about this before. We did not win civil rights victories by strictly working through the political system or by work or by working through the employers. We won it with a movement that was beyond those things. And for whatever reason, and I, and I cannot even begin to get into this in this episode why i think this might be but for whatever reason we seem to believe the only avenues of power now are strictly through politics and now we have we've we've like made it so well our our employer has to be a part of these avenues no it doesn't that's not how we've won the victories we've won we've won by by moving beyond those by by going bigger and most people don't work at huge employers where these movements are going to happen. Most people work at small employers who are not going to be touched by anti-racism training. That's where most people work. And I remember last summer, I got a lot of emails from various companies talking about their stances on anti-racism and police brutality. And it made me angry. <laughs> like, I don't need to know where you random flower vendor stands why are you sending me this i simply do not care about your stance on george floyd random flower vendor i don't care i got like dozens and dozens of emails i remember from comp i was like why why is this a thing you're just filling up people's inboxes 
And I don't think I'm alone in saying it was like vaguely annoying that everybody felt the need to publicly position themselves with a stance that was ultimately not worth anything. It wasn't going to change things. They were doing it for like vague PR reasons, I suspect. Well, yeah, but, but but the PR reasons that affect their bottom line, man. Yeah. So like I, the only pushback that bottom I have, line are they yeah. affecting? You you. you so you exist in a society. You yeah. exist in a society, and you have to say, um, and like with competition, right? So, so yeah. the whole point, like the whole, the whole, you know, the invisible hand of capitalism, right? Um, the, 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 like that's this is a way. This is a actually very trivial way of getting an edge over an opponent. Yeah. So like, that, that's what I'm like. That's my argument here. I'm gonna. Not that I'm here's, a big Adam Smith fan, but let, like let's look at Adam Smith capitalism and be like, and what what was he what does he say? And it's like, well, if your organizations are immoral, then you're like, then like then the, then people will see them as such and they will go somewhere else. And so capitalism will force people like will force organizations to be more moral, and that like that. That means that organizations have moral stances. So here's a question. I'll pose a hypothetical scenario to you guys. We all work for a company. Our owner decides to support a stance that is socially correct, but that costs him business. As a result, two of us get laid off. Is that a win for society? Does society win? Because when when your employer takes stances on your behalf, what they're doing is playing with your money. Don't get You're, it twisted. They're playing with your money. If the so, bottom line gets hurt, they're playing with your job. So I <laughs> But that cuts both like that cuts both ways. It, but that's why but that's why I said the allegiance, why some people would say is to protecting the bottom line, because the employees at the company are also served by the bottom line. And if your stance costs business, the people who are actually going to be hurt. Are the people working for the company? They're playing so the, with your money. But here's the thing: I think the the it's entire reason of coming out true. for stances like these that are like unequivocally good is to protect said bottom line. Like, if as an example, random flower maker number five um, has has sent you that email, right? And you want some flowers. And you know that other, like, random flower maker number four supported Donald Trump. Which flower maker are you going to go to? Like, that matters to you. As, like, a a random consumer, that matters to you. It's the same reason why a bunch of people got rid of straws. Even though a a bunch of restaurants getting rid of straws isn't actually going to help the plastic in the ocean. But, like, they did it because that was, like, a good stance. And they were trying to help their business by, like, doing a thing that people thought was good. Not, uh, not to mention, Anthony, take your take your argument, take your argument to its yeah. lot, to its inevitable conclusion, yeah. and uh, you say you have the video game industry. Yeah, we're going to make a video game about the um oh what's the the seven days of we're gonna make a video game about Iwo Jima. Yeah, and but don't worry, guys, it's completely apolitical. Excuse you? It'll fail because the product is bad. Not because of the stance of the of the company. If the product is bad, it'll fail. Now, to answer your question, Josh, I can tell you what most people are going to do. They're going to see which flower vendor can get them their flowers the quickest and the cheapest, and that's the one they're going to buy from. 
Uh, you that doesn't that's not how that's not how capitalism is supposed to work, Anthony. They're gonna see which flower vendor gives me the product I want at the price I'm willing to pay. Yeah, but some people are more willing to pay more say, to support I, a company I, that say, has a moral sense. I and say uh, I buy Tom's shoes because they are um, like because they do a like they have their whatever they buy whenever they sell a pair of shoes they give a pair of shoes to third world nations they make their shoes out of um, like out of recycled material and um, they say they're right. a grade B company. I support Ben and Jerry's because they're a great. <laughs> You support them because your financial situation allows you to translate your beliefs into your consumption. That is actually not the case for a vast, vast number of people. Probably the majority of people cannot tie their values to their consumption. That is not how they shop. Congratulations. You have arrived at the at the we don't actually live in a capitalist society at that point. Anthony, that's how capitalism works. What I've said before about our group in general, we are three people with college degrees and probably general income levels that are not actually in line with the average person. That's fair. But you're talking about- Most people cannot pair their beliefs with their consumption. They can't do it. They will buy flowers based on, they will, what they will do when they need flowers. They will go into Target they will see the $14.99 flower special sitting there by the register, and that is what they will buy. Well, they're they already to- doing it wrong because there's like $5 <laughs> specials for flowers at Kroger. Right. So or obviously go they're already in the wrong. They'll there. get flowers from Walgreens or CVS <laughs> that are by the register. That is what they will do. So what you were talking about is like you're talking about starvation wages and is like the antip- and isn't capitalism. It's a controlled economy. That so these are again. That is, is a race to the field. bottom controlled economy. That is this That's is not all capitalism. Okay. That's not capitalism, Anthony. Okay. Is okay. That when it comes to anti-racism <laughs> training, people yeah, don't, make the capitalist argument and then be like, "But capitalism doesn't work here." No, because this is not related to what we're talking about. This is a different <laughs> discussion we'll have to have on a different pod. What I'm saying is all of this. Rescue. Why do companies do this? The reason companies do this is not because they are ethical or good, it's because they are afraid of a backlash from a group of from a group of people who are of all races, but they are afraid of a backlash from a group of people who are not who are actually not broadly in line with where most people actually are. They simply want to protect themselves from inevitable PR backlashes. That's why they're doing this. And I, I agree. don't disagree with you. I, I oh, sorry. I do disagree with you. <laughs> I don't disagree, I say, I don't disagree with your with your argument. Um, but I do disagree with your conclusion. You are correct. They are trying to avoid PR backlash, but you are wrong about your about your sentiment. Um, it, let's say if it were unpopular. Let's say if this if it was just. Um, this small group is going to. It didn't. Did Keurig care that a bunch of Republicans decided they were going to take their Keurigs and shoot them, and take you and take cutesy YouTube videos of it? No, they did not care because the like the people who were doing that were not a reasonable percentage of their market share. But these other companies are like, oh, but that that may be a reasonable portion of our market share, and so we we are going to take stances against this because. 
that it, like that is a preservable like that is a portion of our market share that we have to care about. You can't have it both ways. So you you think that like far left liberals are a reasonable share or like a big share of Nike's business? I don't think that this position is as <laughs> um I don't think that this position is as far left a field as you think it is. Uh okay. And right. they clearly agree with me. They clearly think that, like, <laughs> that it's not as far as fringe as you think it is. So, with that, <laughs> I'm going to leave you guys with specifically a quote. And I, 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 I'm, I chose this quote specifically because I think it, it, it highlights how, in my mind, how pervasive and enlightening both finding and recognizing racism where it is can be. I shared this on Facebook a little while ago. If you're friends with me, you may have already seen it. It is white supremacy is kind of like high fructose corn syrup. Bear with me. Very few people would purchase a bottle of it for themselves, but it's cheap, palatable, effective, and unhealthy. And it's an ingredient in just about everything. To me, the experience of opening my eyes to white supremacy was like realizing that high fructose corn syrup was a component in everything I picked up off the shelf at the supermarket, even in things you wouldn't expect, like bread. It's a constant refrain of, seriously, it's in this too? If you don't really care and actively aren't looking for it, you will not find it. You will just consume it thoughtlessly. To those who are adversely affected, however, they will be rigorous in identifying it because a failure to do so is harmful to them and they will look harder and find more wherever they go. So to that, if you are someone who's having lots of problems talking with people about race, remember that they might be finding high, that high fructose corn syrup, current, I can't speak, high fructose corn syrup everywhere they go in their supermarket of the world and they're just trying to get you to find it with them obviously this issue is very difficult to pin down there's lots of caveats here and there's not one good solution but that's the good part is that there's not one good solution and this is very worth talking about and so have this conversation with your friends have this conversation with your family just remember to include all voices in the conversation that you're having. So with that, this podcast has been brought to you in part by El Yag Productions, a studio for podcasters and musicians, and of course, Pointcast News. To listen to any of our other podcasts, please go visit our website at pointcast.news, or you could find us on Apple Podcasts. Also be sure to like us and follow us on Facebook. That's where we share our articles and our polls. We really like interacting with you guys there. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being with me today. For the podcast, guys, Josh out. Thank you.